We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly chess interview show with accomplished chess players, authors, personalities, and adult improvers where they discuss their lives, their careers, and share tips about how to improve at chess. For more information, go to PerpetualChessPod.com. So without further ado... Let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special holiday edition of Perpetual Chess. We're doing something a bit different this time, as believe it or not, I will be the subject of the interview. There are a few reasons I decided that now was the time to do this. Number one, the podcast recently turned five years of age. It was actually right in the middle of the World Championship, which didn't seem like the proper time to celebrate it. But I figured now is as good a time as any uh, to to turn the microphone to myself. I've gotten a lot of emails over the years asking for such an episode. I personally find myself to be incredibly boring, but um, I know that some people have come along sometime in the last five years and wonder what rock me and this podcast crawled out from under. So we'll try to answer that question for you, and then I'll go back to the role I'm more comfortable in being the one uh, asking the questions. Probably won't do something like this for another five years or so, I would guess. And number three is it's a it's a holiday week, so I thought that this might be a good time to lighten my workload. And when I thought about uh, 
who to ask to pitch in and co-host, because I can't really do this on my own without putting you guys all instantly to sleep. The first person I thought of was probably one of the first listeners of Perpetual Chess, definitely one of the first Patreon supporters. And he's also, I knew he had a good mic and he helped me out on the uh, Bobby Fisher Goes to War podcast, did a great job on that. He's a founding member of the Chess Punks, uh, an adult improver in his own right, a chess journalist, a teacher, and most of all, a hardcore chess fan. So who better to walk us through this conversation with myself than Chris Wainscott? So Chris, what's going on? I pass it over to you. Well, then, first of all, thank you for having me uh, for this special edition. Um, it's nice to see the tables finally turned and you wind up having to be the one who's under the micro- microphone and microscope a little bit. Um, a- as you mentioned, I-, I was definitely an early listener of Perpetual Chess. Um, I honestly don't recall exactly what my first episode was. Um, but I do recall that you and Nazi Pakidzi had had some little interlogue or inner dialogue on Twitter where you had mentioned something about her having been on perpetual chess. And I was like, Oh, perpetual chess, you know, what's that? And this is maybe only a couple of weeks after her episode came out. So somewhere within the first 10 episodes or so I, I had become a regular listener and I I've listened to every episode along the way. I was definitely one of the people who was bugging you to create a Patreon page before yeah. you had that going. Um, I, I just wanted to make sure that uh, the podcast that, that as a listener and an enjoyer that I did everything possible to make perpetual chess successful, much like you, Um, I had uh, listened to the full English breakfast during their initial run and I thought it was great. And then all of a sudden they're, they're, they were gone and there wasn't anything. And so when you came along with the somewhat stated goal of providing that kind of content again, I just wanted to make sure that, that I did everything that I could to, to help the show succeed. It's, it's a big part of my week and I enjoy it pretty much every week. And, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm glad to, I'm glad it exists and I want to see it keep going. Well, thanks, Chris. Much appreciated. Really couldn't couldn't have. Uh, you're one of the people instrumental in making sure because um, I was a little bit hesitant to to found a Patreon page, and in those days, obviously, it was costing money and time to have the show produced. Uh, there was no rev- ad revenue. Um, I had just gotten back into chess teaching. I mean, you might have questions planned on all this stuff, but wasn't, you know, I had had some successful years in other fields, but I certainly wasn't making a lot of money at the time. So definitely like surviving that first period was instrumental. And as you mentioned, shout out to the Full English Breakfast, uh, Macaulay Peterson, Lawrence Trent, Simon Williams. Um, I, I also, as a you know, uh, two of my favorite things are podcasts and chess. So I was uh, definitely feeling the lack of uh, offerings at that time as you were. Yeah. So let's, let's talk about chess a little bit, Ben. Um, So when did chess first start to fascinate you? You know, a lot of times the question gets asked is when did you first start to play? But I I found like, especially in my own experience, the difference between when I first started to play, which was when I was four, and when I first became truly fascinated by chess, which is when I was 13, differ a lot. So can you tell the listeners when did chess first start to, to, to engross you and to draw you in? Man, that's a good question. I might have to steal that, Chris, because, uh, because, (laughs) Because regular listeners might have noticed, I'm not a huge fan of chess origin stories. I've listened to enough, again, enough chess interviews, but also enough just interviews generally where like, they always want to start at the beginning, which can be interesting. But if someone's been interviewed a bunch of times, that can make it somewhat repetitive. And, and also with chess, there tends to be like um, enough in common with the origin stories that they're 
they they can kind of run together, especially when you're interviewing the super strong players that I often do. Um, but in in my case, and in the case of your better question, when chess enthralled me, it enthralled me from the day I learned it. Enthralled me. I was six years old, and I was taught at a friend's vacation house. Shout out to Jonathan, and I was just like, "This is amazing!" And I loved games, but it was one of these stories. Uh, others have told similar ones where I didn't know tournament chess existed. I didn't know about the subculture. I didn't know about the competition. So I probably played maybe. 10 games in my life, maybe, you know, definitely not more than 50 between the ages of six and 12 and never read a book, never played a tournament. It was only subsequently in, in uh, school chess club in sixth grade in Philadelphia that I properly got into chess, but, but it, it enthralled me right away. I mean, you, anyone could attest, I would, anyone who I was friends with and knew how to play chess, I would be bugging them to play from the beginning, but that wasn't that many people. You know, that brings up an interesting point because my, my own story mimics that a little bit to where, you know, I played for a number of years. And, and of course, I, I also love the game almost out of the gates, but I didn't I didn't know about the world of chess tournaments and, you know, people who took the game seriously or the, the idea of studying chess, for example, was completely uh, foreign to me because I just never thought about it or, or seen it or heard it. Um, do you think that people who get into chess these days, do you think they go through that same thing? Or do you think there's a lot more like instant access to tournaments since you don't have to, you know, like I didn't know about USCF, for example, until I'd been playing for years. So I never knew that there was somewhere I could look for a tournament. Do you think those barriers are just gone these days? Or do you think people still go through some of that? Um, I suspect that it probably still happens to a small extent especially with like families whose kids show an interest in chess if the family themselves are not aware of it. But I mean, people like Levy Rosman doing his tournament recaps, getting like ungodly numbers of views, you know, um, you know, John Bartholomew going a few years back, like turn these, these presenters on YouTube are so popular and their tournaments are kind of a part of the uh, discourse. So I'm pretty confident in guessing that it's a lot less common than it used to be. But, but I mean, you do see like in the Queen's Gambit boom, which I'm sure we'll discuss, you certainly see people uh, come on to Twitter and, uh, you know, e email me that say like, I didn't know this world. I loved it. I knew that I knew it was a cool game. I didn't know this world existed. So, um, but basically it seems like that's less common than ever that people are not aware of sort of the competitive history and subculture. And by the way, shout out to my man, Levy Rosman, who, if the Twitterati got it right, tied the knot today. Yeah. Yeah. Congrats to Levy. Amazing. That um, was uh, maybe the most exciting news in the chess world all day. I love how like, all props to Levy and chess.com. Like he's, uh, as I've, I've mentioned before, he's been really gracious to me in addition to just like crushing it uh, on all levels. But I find it funny that like his, his romance with Lucy has become like, it's like a part of his personality. It's like a, a subplot of his own. Like he did an interview on the first day of the world championship with chess.com. And, you know, Danny Wrench's last question to him was like, uh, so how are things with Lucy? And I was just trying to imagine like, you know, I mean, obviously I'm, not on Levy's planet um, in terms of presentation skills or notoriety, but I'm just imagining if I was being interviewed and someone asked me about my wife, I would be like, how's my wife? What? <laughs> but Lucy's like a character in his show. So it was cool to see that they got married. That's true. Um, let's talk, speaking of, uh, speaking of wives and family. So how does your wife feel about the amount of time that you devote to chess? Uh, she's, 
pretty, she's very supportive, I have to say. I mean, you know, the biggest obstacles were, again, spend, spending money at the start of the podcast. That aspect in particular uh, needed support. Um, but chess itself, I mean, now it's my job, you know, thankfully, I feel feel very lucky about that. So she she's generally a good a good sport. I try to pick my spots. So like, you know, I was totally antisocial to my family during the world championship walking or even if I'm like doing stuff around the house, I've got earbuds in my ears watching a show or whatever. But I warned her in advance about that. But, you know, when something like um, Tata Steel, which I love and left to my own devices, I would do the same thing. Like, I don't do it then, you know, I wait, I wait for the world championship and the FIDE world rapid and blitz. And obviously, I spend some time on on my own game. But I think part of the reason that I don't progress as much as many of the adult improvers that I interview is like, if push comes to shove, and I can like drink wine and watch succession with my wife, um, at the end of a work day, or like grind tactics, <laughs> like, you know, whatever I might have told myself I was going to do earlier in the day, there's a decent chance I'm going to go for plan A. So I'm not like totally neglecting her or family responsibilities. No, and I, I find that that's, uh, it, it's kind of like the same concept of a work life balance. I, I find that a family chess balance uh, is very important. Um, especially, you know, I spend a lot of time and derive uh, a lot of my income also from chess. Uh, and I'm married. Uh, we don't have kids, but I wind up in this situation where I find that as long as I kind of pick when I go away to a tournament or, you know, when I choose to pay attention to an event that might be going on, it's it's fairly workable. So for anyone out there who's being told that, oh, my God, if you get married, it's going to ruin your ability to enjoy chess, that people couldn't be more wrong. Yeah. Um, and of course, communication is key. I mean, it definitely helps if you like again, pick your spots basically. Yep. So let's, I want to know what are some of your fondest chess memories, whether as a player or a tourist, uh, et cetera. Like for example, one of the things I think about uh, when I think about uh, perpetual chess is the conversation that you've had with Mike Klein talking about like playing blitz in a beer garden in Prague. So what are some of your fondest memories of the game on whatever level? Yeah, that was a good one. I've had a few with Mike uh, playing playing in the famed um, thermal pools in in Budapest, um, playing on a beach of Cairo. <laughs> so, or not Cairo in Egypt, I should say. So, yeah, we we've got a we've we've had some some fun chess adventures together over the years. I mean, one is certainly my my junior high school masterman from Philadelphia became kind of a scholastic powerhouse, and my team won nationals. And uh, masterman's like um. Uh, you know, it's a magnet school, so you have to test your way in, but it's a public school. It's, um, you know, not like some prep school that was pouring tons of money in, and, and it was just fun. I mean, one of my favorite things about chess can be like the community. So to have experiences like that, um, at an early age is, is certainly one of them in terms of my playing, like I'm you know, my games, I feel like they're like riddled with flaws. So I don't really have any memorable experiences there. I mean, I, you know, won some money once, but even that I don't, I don't remember it like as like some standout thing. So most of the highlights chess wise, of course, have come in the course of doing this podcast. So many sort of pinch me moments. As a matter of fact, that takes me to my next question, which is what does chess mean to you? And how has that changed over the years? Have you, as you've segued from being a player to a coach to a podcaster? Um, I mean, chess. 
what, like when I was doing more scholastic programs, I used to tell kids like chess and music are like the great connectors. You know, like if you're if you're traveling somewhere and you have, you bring a guitar and you're halfway decent at it, like you suddenly you're going to find people around you if you start playing it. And chess, if you like set up a chess set or look for a chess community or something like that, um, they, they tend to, you know, you can, you can sort of find your people, especially if you're really into chess. So more than anything else, that's what chess means to me. It's this, this uh, sense of community and this shared history. And obviously this all gets to part of my motivation for starting the podcast too, because um, I, you know, I felt like uh, some of those stories weren't being told. So I wanted to, uh, to, to do what I could to sort of connect people and like, uh, you know, um, help people feel like they know uh, players who they might see. And that's about it. Well, all right. Well, okay, listeners, I hope you're ready because we're going to dive into the genesis and evolution of perpetual chess right after we hear from our sponsors. What is new from Chessable, you ask? Well, friend of the pod FM, Camille Plicta, just dropped Lifetime Repertoire's Accelerated Dragon. I know a lot of Accelerated Dragon enthusiasts have been waiting for that, and I've heard rave reviews. I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, has a Keep It Simple Black repertoire coming soon. And of course, whether it be an opening course, a tactics course, um, or an in-game course on Chessable, you can utilize their proprietary space repetition technology to make sure you learn the lessons that are being imparted. So be sure to go to chessable.com and have a look at what's new. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere. And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Okay. And we are back. Let's, uh, let's dive into some of the origin stories regarding perpetual chess, Ben. I'm sure that this is stuff that people are going to want to know about. Um, both some of the newer listeners from the Queen's Gambit boom, uh, the recent chess boom in general, and then also some of the people like myself who have uh, been listeners from practically day one. Um, so our first, our first question comes from Patreon supporter um, and also a friend of mine who just happened to send me the question, uh, Ryan Murphy, known as Murfinski on uh, Twitch, who asked probably the most important question we're going to get to tonight, and that is, when is Yasser going to be on the show? Oh, man. Ryan just went for it. Um, so shout out to Ryan. Ryan, I mean, I, I, I know you mentioned him as an adult improver. I know he's a coach. His name came up in uh, the Megan Chan adult improver. I know he did some good coaching to uh, help Megan uh, ascend. Um, so all I can say is Yasser, Yasser has been asked. <laughs> I, don't, okay. I, don't know, I don't know what else to say beyond that. So as I always tell listeners, um, if you... You know, if there's someone super high profile that you want to hear on the show, don't tell me, tell them. Now, in some cases, people haven't been asked. Um, you know, uh, Magnus Carlsen, you know, time's almost right, but not quite. Um, but there's, so there's a lot of top players who I just ha simply haven't gotten around to asking. But, uh, but yeah, sir, I would love to interview him anytime. Then my door is always open, but uh, haven't been able to make it happen yet. 
So the nice thing about uh, if you could get Yasser on the show is you could have Yasser on if you had a sore throat. I mean, all you need to do <laughs> yeah. is intro him, ask one question, and sit back. And for the next probably three to five hours, Yasser is just going to hold court. So exactly, just leave the room. Hopefully, he can find time in his busy schedule and come on and entertain the listeners. Yeah, um, I, I've had the pleasure of uh, spending a bit of time around Yasser in St. Louis, and it's always a good time. And more importantly, at least half of those stories can be told on the air. <laughs> yeah, total total legend. Obviously, it would be a, a thrill. Yeah, so let's get into some more Patreon uh, mailbag questions. Chad Oliver, uh, actually, first Chad says, Ben, congratulations on five years and best wishes for five more. Uh, as a personal aside, I'd like to know why you're only asking for five more years, Chad. Uh, I'm thinking <laughs> 2025 is really the number we should be shooting for. Um, but Chad goes on to say a few questions for you and uh, I'll, I'll read all three questions and then we can take them one at a time. So the first question is how did the podcast come to be to what do you attribute the success and what do you know uh, now that you wish you had known when you started the podcast? So let's take those one by one. So how did perpetual chess come into existence? Yeah. So first of all, I'll cop to that. I, I did see these questions in advance, so I had some time to mull them over. Although in terms of, uh, how it came to be. That's not, not a super challenging question, but when, when we get to the third one. Um, so how it came to be is sort of what we were talking about, Chris. I'm a hardcore um, podcast fan in addition to being hardcore chess fan. And yeah, once full English, like I was always thinking there should be an interview show. I love this podcast uh, called WTF with Mark Marin, um, where he interviews a lot of uh, a lot of celebrities, a lot of comedians and stuff like that. But he's just amazing at pe getting people to sort of uh, have what sound like organic conversations, even though they're broadcast, you know, to a million people or whatever it is. And at the time, I was driving around a lot doing scholastic programs in Pittsburgh. Often it would be like a 40 minute drive. And I just couldn't believe that there wasn't a chess podcast. So, you know, I was wanting to do it for like a year. And then finally, um, the a finance guy that I follow called... Uh, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, who has this huge podcast now called Invest Like the Best, um, that's highly worthwhile if you're into business or finance. I know Geert Vanderveld of Chessable has become a, an avid listener and compared it to, to getting an MBA. So that's a high recommendation right there. But anyway, at some point, Patrick tweeted out that if you're ever looking for a producer for the podcast, for a podcast, here's your man. And he gave his info. So I reached out to that person just to have like an exploratory conversation, got a sense of what it would cost, had the talk with my wife. And, you know, it took probably two, three months to actually launch it. We recorded a few episodes ahead of time, but then I just decided before I did it, I'm going to do this for at least six months, no matter what. Um, and then we'll see if it seems viable uh, at all. And luckily, six months later, it wasn't like, you know, I probably was making, uh, that was probably around when I watched the Patreon, launched the Patreon page. So I was making, basically had made no money to that point, but I mean, I'm sure there were over a thousand listeners an episode, which is not huge, but um, but considering uh, that I had started from nothing. I was encouraged to keep going. Plus I had nothing else to do. So, like, <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's interesting that you mentioned that because, uh, well, first of all, I think you're right about the timeline there because it does seem like right around the six month mark is when you did launch the Patreon page. Um, but you know, it's interesting because I can recall a few conversations that you and I would have had over messenger where, 
to me, the show seemed fantastically successful. And you would say things like you said just now, where you're like, well, you know, there's like maybe a thousand downloads. It's not a huge number. It seems okay. But it seemed like everybody that I talked to had listened to the show, whether they were a regular listener who, who never missed a word or whether they at least had listened to a handful of episodes. It seemed like everybody had some level of, uh, of knowledge that the podcast existed. And I, I was, once you launched the Patreon page and I saw that people took to it, I kind of, uh, relaxed a little, I guess we'll say, because of the fact that I had been nervous that at some point you would pull the plug. I can imagine it was a completely um, thankless and expensive ordeal um, that luckily then took on a life of its own. So let's take the second of those questions. To what do you attribute the podcast's success? Um, yeah, that one I think is relatively easy. I mean, I think primarily it's first mover advantage. I mean, the, again, the people, whether they liked it or not, <laughs> like there was no other chess podcast. So if you, if you wanted to, uh, you know, if you were interested in chess and looking for entertainment on the go, like, you know, you're going to have to deal with me. <laughs> and I definitely don't, <laughs> feel, I definitely don't feel like I was like an amazing host in the, in the early days. So I really think that, that that's, that's a large part of it. And the, the only, the only other thing I'll take a uh, great credit for is some degree of consistency. Um, you know, you alluded to, uh, to being worried that I would pull the plug. It, it, that wasn't ever really an issue, but, but the path that could have gone down in like once or twice it might have is like you start to miss an episode here and then you miss an episode there and then you have no schedule. Like when, when you're not making any money doing something and you're, you're busy. And I, I said, I didn't have anything else to do, but, um, obviously I had two young kids, so I had plenty to do. It's just from a professional perspective, I, I had the time to, to devote to it. But anyway, I mean, it was more, it was more likely to be a, a slow demise rather than a sudden, sudden disappearance if it, if it hadn't made it. But yeah, I mean, first mover advantage and consistency, I think are the, the reason the show managed to, um, to sustain. Yeah. You know, you, you definitely, uh, you make a point with the first move advantage, but it's interesting because there's been a wave of podcasts that have, that have followed perpetual chess. Um, you know, it's funny cause we, we talked about earlier, I used to also pine for the return of the full English breakfast because I had enjoyed having some chess content to listen to. Um, and now I can't keep up with any of it. I mean, I listen to perpetual chess. I listen to the occasional episode of another podcast. If it's something that uh, like, if there's a particular guest or topic that might really interest me, but there's just so much content out there, out there these days, which I think is a great thing. And I, I think that speaks volumes to your work and to the audience for Perpetual Chess who have helped, you know, make some of these other shows uh, grow an audience as well. So let's take the third part of that question. What do you know now that you wish you had known when you started? Yeah, I really thought about this and you, it kind of feels pompous to, <laughs> to, to say like there, there, nothing comes to mind. But I mean, it speaks more broadly to sort of a general philosophy, which I think many people share, which is like, if you're, you know, if you're happy with your station in life, it doesn't do much good to sort of uh, live, live with regret. Um, you just kind of have to to move forward. So certainly, I mean, I wish the you know the production had been better in the early days, and you know some uh, some questions I wish I some questions I wish I had followed up on stuff like that along the way. 
But on the other hand, you know, you you play the cards you're dealt and like you do what you can with the information you have at the time. So um, so, yeah, I don't have any any major podcast related do overs I, I would want because, I again, I feel I feel very fortunate uh, the way things have turned out uh, as of now. Knock on wood. OK, so that actually leads us directly into the next uh, mailbag question submitted by Patreon supporter Tim Walters. Tim says, hi, Ben. I've enjoyed the show for a long time, and it's been really awesome to see how you evolved as a podcaster. I can tell your style has changed over the years, and you've become great at pulling the best stories and thoughts out of those you interview. Was there a conscious change in your interviewing approach over the years, or was this a skill you just naturally developed over time? Are there any different interviewing styles or techniques you're planning to incorporate in the future? Yeah, so great, great question from Tim. Um, it was more, I hope, or I think, like just marginal improvement uh, across the board, I hope. I mean, certainly I try to do better with ums and ahs and likes and wows. And, you know, it's a constant struggle. Um, I do, you know, one thing I can definitely highlight is uh, about a year in, once I felt like, you know, I was making a bit of money and I could devote a bit more time. It might have been after 100 episodes, but that's when I started to do show notes for every episode. So before that, I wouldn't, you know, I had a producer, so I wouldn't necessarily even listen to all of the interviews. But once I started to do the show notes myself, that and that gave me like um, a, a forced mechanism to have to re-listen to every interview. Um, so I think that helped me evolve a lot because it's, and when I do, and you know, it requires a degree of the attention where like, I can't be doing that in the car. You know, I can't be doing that, uh, at the gym. I have to be sitting in front of my computer, not multitasking. So, so doing that really helped me in terms of, uh, like interview styles. I mean, the one thing I can say right now is I'm trying to become less meta while I'm interviewing. Um, I, you know, I have a tendency to say, like, later we're going to talk about this because, you know, I, I generally do have an outline that I'm working from. But if you listen to, like, the great interviewers, like uh, Mark Marin or Terry Gross from Fresh Air, um, they have a way of having a plan and having some information they want to extract, but they don't, um, they don't lay out that plan verbally. So that, along with the constant battle against filler words, are the two things I'm working on. Um, from a content perspective, to Tim's question, in a couple weeks, we're going to do the, I did an IM to GM special episode, I think it was last March, with uh, Lawrence Trent and uh, Sean Nagel and Attila Terzo, three uh, adult improvers, basically, even though they're their IMs, uh, hoping during the GM title. And I'm working now on an a master to I am episode again, where I interview three people trying to get to the next level. And the, the I am to GM was pretty well received. And if this one is well received, I kind of, I feel like I, I want to just keep doing it at different levels. It gives me an opportunity to highlight more people. I can't, you know, I can't interview everyone, especially when it comes to adult improvers, um, where like lots of people, uh, you know, um, wouldn't mind being interviewed, you could say, but this is a way to sort of make it more targeted and, uh, you know, introduce more voices to the community. So that's sort of the one uh, programming thing I'm going to be trying to lean into in at least like the next couple months. And they, they take a while to put together. So it's not like, uh, 
it's not like it'll be like an every month thing, but certainly when it comes out, if people like it, please, please let me know because I would just go straight to expert to master class A to expert. And, and so it goes. So, but yeah, I hope that, uh, hope that was helpful, Tim. I think that's a great answer. And, and I will say that, uh, you've see, I just said, uh, filler words <laughs> or the nemesis, but what I was going to say is I think you've done a great job with eliminating the filler words. I've gone back and I've listened to some of the earlier episodes a few times, especially since uh, a handful of my friends were some of those early guests, um, like Sabina Foyser, uh, for example, and that was a really early episode. Yeah, And I can, I can hear quite the difference in your approach to the way that you structure filling that time. And I, and I think it's made the show much cleaner and much better. Yeah, those um, interviews are painful for me to listen to. I'm not gonna <laughs> lie. Um, so let's let's. Alex Friedman also submits a Patreon mailbag question. Now, some of this we've already covered. So the only part of his question I'll ask because I think it's great. What were the highlights of these five years for you? He says, "Congratulations on the show turning five years old." What are the highlights of these five years for you? Excellent. Yeah, I mean there there really are so many. I. I mean, not to, not to toot, toot my own horn or whatever. Like, I honestly don't think it's a big reflection of me. Again, uh, to the extent I deserve credit, I think it's mainly consistency and momentum have sort of propelled it. But when I was today thinking about doing this tonight, I was just l looking through the list of guests and it's just like, you know, there's so many legends. Um, I mean, obviously, one that comes to mind is uh, Vishianan because there's a Amazing. funny story, which I don't think I... I have told um i mean first like so someone who knew him shout out to if you're listening you know who you are um put me in touch with him and uh his wife uh aruna who handles his business uh dealings seemed receptive and said you know email me at such and such time after such and such tournament is over and we did and then we we set up a time for to record the interview and uh then i realized uh that I'd screwed up the time zone conversion. So the interview was going to be at like 2 a.m. my time. And so on the one hand, I'm so excited that I have this interview. But on the other hand, it's at 2 a.m. And, you know, I'm so sort of nervous and starstruck about the whole thing that I almost didn't reschedule it because I was like, you know, I have this interview. I don't want to screw it up. Let me just wake up at 2 a.m. And, uh, and, and do whatever needs to be done. But my wife, credit to her, was was the calmer voice and she you know she said if they want to do the interview they you know they don't care about rescheduling it's it's not like it was last minute it was like f four days in advance or whatever so i did email them we did reschedule and yeah and uh a lot of these busy people uh patreon subs will know sometimes i post like this interview is going to happen and sometimes once in a while i'll post like i think this interview is going to happen but i'm not entirely sure and uh vishy was one of those i i wasn't i hadn't gotten that one last email where like i know he's going to be there so to see to to like hear him log on to skype and say hi it's vishy and then just be <laughs> totally friendly and uh disarming that was definitely a pinch me moment um you know, interviewing Judah Polgar, my favorite chess player, obviously, uh, was was uh, the thrill of a lifetime. But you also, I mean, from from players, you know, who aren't necessarily huge, you know, huge names. Um, sometimes they you just hear them crushing it. You know, you just hear a great story, and it's a great feeling when it's happening. Like uh, Tom Murphy, um, you know, people in the U. Lots of people in the U.S. know him, but 
I mean, for lack of a better term, he's a chess hustler. He's been supporting himself gambling, but everyone who's come across him knows that he's like a gentleman and a legendary rock contour. And, you know, you never know how it's going to, how something's going to come across in a podcast, but it's one of those where like a few minutes in, you're like, all right, you know, this, <laughs> this is going to be great. So those are a few of the moments that uh, come to mind uh, off the top of my head. Yeah, those the Vichy interview I've listened to several times. Uh, same with Judith. I know that one was a little bit abbreviated because she had other stuff in her schedule. But uh, Vichy was very giving of his time. Yeah, and I think a lot about, especially that moment where he said when he sits at the board and he can't, he's not sure if he can remember his prep, he feels abject terror mm-hmm. because – I just found that so relatable. And uh, obviously, he's um, in many ways not relatable, which is uh, obviously a, a compliment, <laughs> not a, not an insult. His superhuman chess skills, I find not relatable at all. But yeah, that, that story is one I think about a, a lot. So uh, in addition to taking questions from some Patreon supporters, one of the things that we did for this interview, uh, because you're pretty active in the Twitter chess community, is uh, I put a post on Twitter asking if anyone had any questions they would like to submit. And I think we got a few good ones from there. So Ian Childs uh, on Twitter actually asked a question, which I think is going to be very important for new listeners or people who maybe have been listening uh, off and on for a short time. And that's going to be, which handful of episodes would you recommend to show what the podcast is about? Yeah, thank goodness I ha- I did have some time to think about that because when people ask me for like favorite episodes and stuff like that, it, I tend to just um and ah for like 45 seconds or just name 12 right away, <laughs> neither of which is uh, all that helpful. And I like the way he framed it of like not just your favorite episodes, but sort of a representative sample. Um, and I mean... Okay, first of all, since I was just talking about it, definitely the Tom Murphy interview is super fun. And in a similar vein, uh, New York legend Asa Hoffman is another one that I was really happy with how it turned out. And it's another one where I feel like the podcast is really uh, serving a distinct purpose. I mean, obviously, I love it when I get to interview the Maxime Vashir Lagraves and Hikaru Nakamura's of the world. But... we're not lacking for opportunities to hear their perspective, which is a testament to them. But there are some stories that I feel like if I'm not helping to tell them, they they won't necessarily be be told as much. Um, So those are uh, a couple that come to mind um, in terms of, uh, I mean, the adult improver spectrum. I mean, there's, there's, Lots of great stories. I think I would have to go to the original with uh, Andres Quizdra because, I mean, he, you know, it was his achievement that made me even think of uh, of doing that. And he just had so many great, great uh, tips and put on like such an amazing run. Uh, Jan Timmen, even though he is a legend and like obviously has written many books and, uh, you know, done many interviews. Uh, that's one that I, I was pretty happy with with my ability to sort of get him to tell stories that if nothing else, he hasn't like collated in one place. And I'm referring to the first Jan Timmen interview, not the very Mm -hmm. uh, recent one that took, I was really happy with the recent one during the world championship too, but it was shorter and more uh, news oriented. But the, uh, the, the longer one um, where he talked about his career more broadly was definitely a personal highlight and uh, definitely good entry level. And I, I got to give a shout out to the old school Soviet guys. I love, 
that's another one where their stories can be underrepresented. I especially love stories of like, you know, coming to a new country. Like I actually haven't re-listened to the Alex Yermolinsky episode in a long time, but I mean, I do remember him telling the story of just coming to America, basically knowing no one with like halting English. He was a great chess player, but he was an IM. He wasn't even a GM yet. And just sort of like to what we were talking about earlier, Chris, in terms of like it giving you community. I mean, him using chess to sort of uh, bolster his career and become the like uh, lovable chess legend that Uncle Yermo is today. I mean, he he definitely told some great stories from from arriving in the U.S. with like nothing, you know. He did. And I, I would actually like to echo your thoughts uh, regarding both the uh, OG adult improver, Andres, and Yermo's episode, both of which I've listened to uh, quite a few times. Um, in fact, I, I had heard of Chessable prior to Andres's interview, but I hadn't really ever used it. Um, and it's now literally a part of my daily routine. I mean, I have a 600 and some odd day streak going and that all that all started, or at least the genesis of it was listening to that interview. Um, yeah, I have to say, I feel like Chessable is like my, uh, my older, wildly more successful brother <laughs> because, yes. uh, because like I interviewed obviously John Bartholomew, who was already a star in the chess world. I've been lucky enough to interview him a couple of times and, you know, I think it was episode 25. I believe I remember off the top of my head when he's telling me he signed on with this new company and telling me about the company. And then obviously I interviewed, uh, his co-founder, uh, David Cramley and subsequently Geert and now Geert's risen through the ranks. So yeah, it's been amazing to see them move along. Well, really leave me in the dust along this uh, parallel track. Ge- Geert wants to know when you're going to do a chessable course. <laughs> yeah. I, I'm, I'm not lacking for ideas, Geert. I'll tell you that much. I have a, obviously doing this for a living. I have plenty of, I, I hope I have some insights about some things that that have not yet been done, believe it or not, amidst this sea of chess content. But I've, um, with my scant free time, I've been uh, writing a book about the podcast, writing sort of a compilation of uh, chess improvement advice. Um, it was going much better before the World Championship. I was, uh, I was a lot more productive before the World Championship, and I haven't uh, reopened it yet. But in terms of like what you could call discretionary projects, uh, that one is top of the heap, but certainly I'd uh, I'd love to try to make the time for a, a chessable course or two someday. That sounds great. Um, our, our next question comes by way of Twitter, but uh, it may he may actually I'd be stunned if he's not a uh, Patreon supporter. The question is from Brian Karen, who is the founder of the Chessbook Collectors Group on Facebook, which I've lost track of how many members there are now. I think it's uh, mid forties or high forty thousands. Yeah, yeah. It, it's I mean I remember when there were. 5,000, 6,000. And now it's, it's completely grown, uh, which is, which is amazing. So Brian asks, uh, two, two good questions. His first is describe your toughest episode. And of course he says you can keep the guest anonymous. Yeah. I, I can't, I can't go into too much detail, but I I'll, I'll say this. I've, I probably mentioned this before. I find, uh, kids to be challenging interviews no big surprise there um because they just don't have as much life experience they haven't been as interviewed interviewed as much um so uh so it can be a bit more challenging to draw them out (laughs) um and 
a couple others. Obviously, there have been language barriers here and there. I mean, overall, I've interviewed so many non, non-native English speakers. And overall, I mean, it's definitely a testament to the, the correlation between chess skill and language ability that most of them, I find their English to be simply fantastic. But obviously, here and there, there have been some questions that got lost in translation or you feel like the, the conversation doesn't flow as smoothly. And then the, the third type of challenging interview. Now, of course, I like it when my guests talk, but every once in a while, you'll have a guest where like their cadence is such that you can't necessarily tell when when they're done and you should hop in. Um, so sometimes you have challenging interviews in, in that regard. So uh, those are the three types of challenging interviews in, in my mind, Brian. And shout out to Brian. He is a Patreon sub. I figured he was. Um, his, yeah. his other question is, what are your top five favorite podcasts? Now, we don't have to treat this like it's some sort of chess buzzfeed. So instead of naming your top five, just what are some of your favorite podcasts in general? Yeah, I, I obviously thought about this, too. And I, I'm probably I haven't counted, but I'm probably subscribed to at least 100 podcasts. But I'm more of a, uh, a dabbler. I mean, I, I pick and choose, but I have a pretty wide range of interests. I mean, I am a big NBA fan and a baseball fan, so I tend to listen to a decent number of sports-related podcasts, especially uh, in season, although with the NBA, let's face it, it's always in season. Um, so the, the two podcasts that I – the only two podcasts that I listen to every week are one called The Rights to Ricky Sanchez, which is a Sixers-based podcast shout out to any uh any people in the in my fellow venn diagram it's got to be a small number but anyway i mean it's two guys from philly but they they've done an they do an amazing job of building community um they do an amazing job promoting their sponsors um so and they do a lot of charity stuff so even though for me it's like escapism i don't actually watch the sixers that much i it's more like by listening to the podcast i'm like an informed fan so that's one i listen to every single episode now and the other one is a finance podcast called animal spirits um they actually do two interviews a week and one is kind of what they call a deep dive about uh, a certain subject and i usually don't listen to those but every wednesday they do like a week in financial news and they also at the end talk about like papers they've read and shows or books and they're they're sharp guys. So um, and shout out to Matthew Passy, my producer. He uh, he actually produces their their show as well. One of the many more successful podcasts than mine. So those are the two I listen to every week. And then obviously a lot of interview shows like the aforementioned Mark Marin and Terry Gross and uh, Ezra Klein. And now there's just so many. I mean, there's a lot of sort of business oriented ones that I dip in and out of every once in a while. If you want actual real life, I like this one called Death, Sex, and Money, um, which is interview, but well-produced. Um, so yeah, those, those are a smattering, Brian, but certainly um, wide range of uh, podcast interests. Yeah, and uh, I guess since you brought up the NBA, I should point out that I'm a diehard Phoenix Suns fan going back to the uh, – to the mid to late eighties. Um, but I live in Wisconsin in a suburb of Milwaukee. So Ooh. the finals last year was quite interesting at work. Yeah, that was rough. I thought uh, the Suns were going to win, but, uh, so yeah. did I after those yeah. first two games. Yeah. Um, so Patreon supporter, Andrew Perry actually asked one of the more interesting questions that I read, uh, because these are the kinds of things that I've wondered about a lot as well. And I assume others have too. Uh, Andrew asks, how do you spend your given time in a week? 
uh, or your time in a given week, rather. For example, how many hours do you typically devote to each of the following areas? Learning about your guests, including reading the books they've written, post-interview show preparation, um, playing chess online or in person, and studying chess with an eye to improvement or other activities, and what about outside of chess? So I'm really fascinated by the how much time are you spending preparing for a given interview, um, and the other questions we can talk about after that. Okay. So, yeah, it, of course, varies based on the guest. Um, for example, adult improver guests don't tend, for the most part, they're not content creators. So there's really only so much prep I can do. You know, certainly if they have given interviews and stuff like that, I, I would try to to uh, to do that. But but so those tend to be on the lighter side of prep. But um, for, for every interview like that, like every time there's an author, I read their book and that's going to be usually, uh, at least 10 hours just, just to read someone's book. And I have obviously the book recap podcasts are, um, extremely time consuming. The, the RO, the ROI on those is not great because, uh, you know, the most popular books, the, the, my systems, uh, those tend to be popular episodes, but if it's a lesser known book, they tend to be less popular, but those take up a lot of time. It's more for those I've learned, it's like a daily practice type thing. So that could be like half an hour to an hour a day. And then obviously anytime I do an interview, I'm blocking off, uh, at, at least two hours. Um, the day the podcast comes out, there's like probably about two hours worth of like backend stuff in terms of like the emails and, uh, posting it on the website and the social media and, uh, you know, rendering the YouTube video and all that stuff. Um, and then in terms of my own chess, I mean, it, it was, as regular listeners will know, it was uh, reasonably scant for a long time. I've gotten slightly better recently. Again, before the World Championship, I and this also is, well, it's a testament to COVID not having as much like school-related work, which I don't know how much I'll be doing uh, anyway going forward. But I mean, I had finally, in theory, at least I had an hour blocked off to study chess per day. Now, uh, shout out to Neil Bruce. Um, often that hour would, you know, stuff would come up and that hour would get shrunk to 45 minutes and it gets shrunk to 30 minutes. And then it's like, okay, I'm just going to make sure I do 15 minutes. So there's definitely like a decent number of days like that. Um, but I, I hope that gives you a taste, uh, Andrew. I, I definitely don't have uh, everything itemized. But, um, but, but yeah, I mean, when, you know, my, as a freelancer, my work is, uh, is somewhat um, sporadic. Like, for example, uh, How to Chess has been on hiatus during the, the World Championship. So, in theory, that has freed up some time. But whenever I have, t and like today, I thought I was going to have time to finally get back to the book. But whenever I have time uh, freed up between like answering emails, oh, and the, the, the posts I write for Patreon take a surprisingly amount of time. And I feel like they always end up like riddled with typos anyway, but they, they take at least 45 minutes. So anyway, it's like a million little things, but overall, obviously the bottom line is I want to be clear. I consider myself very fortunate. It's a, these are all uh, great problems to have. All right. So let's go into one final question uh, about perpetual chess. Uh, and then we'll, we'll take a break and we'll come back and talk about Ben, the adult improver. So here's my question. You've mentioned him a couple of times uh, but I'd like to take a moment to talk about Matthew Passy. 
I think that the role of a podcast producer is completely underrated. Uh, a couple of years ago, a friend of mine and I seriously started about talk, uh, seriously talked about starting a podcast. Um, we had what we thought were some pretty good ideas. Between the two of us, we have quite a bit of access within the chess world to find interesting guests. But to be brutally honest, the project fell apart when we couldn't find a producer. So talk about the value that Matthew br- uh, brings to perpetual chess. Yeah, I mean, he's he's indispensable during these these bonus pods, you know, and he's got a family, too. So uh, he he had super quick turnarounds on, on those. If I ever have a tech issue and I, I, I can just text him and he seems to always be on top of it. And again, I'm like, you know, I'm like a, a peon in his in his universe. I mean, uh, invest like the best in particular. It's it's hard to. Uh, it's hard to um, hard to explain the 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 scope of its reach. I mean, if you Google some finance big shot, like the CEO of Spotify has been on it twice. You know, like like that that kind of level. Um, so so the fact that he still makes time for it and it's definitely not his most uh, financially rewarding is yeah. I mean, full stop. The podcast wouldn't wouldn't exist without him. Well, I'm glad to, you know, it's funny. I guess I always assumed that you and he were old friends going way back. So it's, to me, it's kind of fascinating to find out that that's not the case at all. Yeah, yeah, not at all. We've only met in person once, like, which was before the podcast started. (laughs) All right. Well, like I mentioned, we're going to take a quick break to hear from our sponsors. But when we come back, we're going to talk to Ben, the adult improver. Attempted adult improver. We're going to talk to Ben, the attempted adult improver. We'll see you in just a few moments. Good news, listeners. According to aimchess.com, I'm now only behind on the clock 75% of the time in my Blitz games. That's actually huge progress for me. I'm going to keep working to bring it up, and I recommend you use aimchess.com to address whatever weaknesses you may have in your game, whether it be playing with the white or black pieces, a particular opening, or a particular phase of the game. They give tailored lessons for whatever their algorithm detects, and of course, their algorithm scrapes the games from the major chess player sites themselves in order to tell you what you need. If you decide to subscribe to aimchess.com after checking it out, be sure to use the promo code perpetual30. Details are in the show notes. Check out aimchess.com. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back where you can hear but not see us. Um, So, Ben... You know, you had mentioned this a little bit ago that you were kind of inactive in the chess world in terms of at least playing or studying, uh, but that certainly has changed in recent months. And so I wanted to talk to you a little bit about uh, Ben, the attempted adult improver, as you said. So can you tell me how your approach to studying has changed from the time that you were first coming up until now? Um, with the invention of tools like Chessable, Aim Chess, Tactics Trainers, uh, et cetera, the methods have changed. But how has your actual approach to the process changed, if indeed it has? All right. Good question, Chris. So, um, I mean, obviously, regular listeners will have picked up on the fact that when I interview strong players 
like, you know, you try to sort of pull on the thread of, uh, of what, how they got to be so good. And with like titled players in particular, you notice that often they started as kids and whatever resources they might credit, the fact of matter is it came somewhat easily to them. Um, they just played and played and maybe they had a coach or maybe they had a school program or maybe they were self-motivated. But basically, more often than not, even when they highlight a plateau, it'll be like for a year before they started rocketing up again. Um, and that's, I think, why the Adult Improver episodes, among other reasons, have, have really taken off is that they're not that relatable for people who, who are struggling to improve. And I'm, I've certainly embodied that myself. I mean, obviously, I'm, I'm nowhere near as strong as most of the people that I've interviewed. But I did, I did make USCF Master when I was 18. And, you know, basically, that was my peak. I peaked at like 2270 USCF when I was 18, and haven't really sniffed it um, since. Um, and it, for me, it was a similar story. Like, yes, I read chess books. But uh, I was kind of uh, enveloped in the culture. I mean, my I was probably playing two weekends a month um, and, you know, friends with the Shahadis, as I've said many times, would, as I got stronger, get to play in like blitz tournaments at their house with like lots of local Philadelphia masters. So a lot of it was just learning by doing. And obviously as an adult, you, you take a different approach. But as I've played, as I've gotten more into it, as you alluded to, Chris, I've definitely... Uh, sort of come full circle in that it, playing more tournaments recently. Now, it's only been uh, three tournaments since July, um, but in COVID times, that's that's not awful. And, uh, you know, my current goal is to, to get to the John Donaldson recommendation of 50 rated games per year. That's sort of what I have in mind. And now that my kids are both school age, it seems more doable. And Anyway, the the point is that playing, getting back into tournaments has really reminded me that to me that's uh that's where the rubber meets the road. That's really the, the where the you have the best chance of improving more than more than any other training that that you can do. Yeah, I agree with that, and I, I also agree that it is difficult sometimes when you talk to a lot of titled players. Um, I, I've also had a number of interactions with titled players socially, business wise, and other. And the only title player I can ever think of who actually had what I would consider a real plateau, uh, I was at a lecture that uh, Maurice Ashley was giving at the oh, yeah. on Meridian's Chess Center. And, you know, I was going through a plateau at the time that was probably eight months, a year long, something like that. You know, since I, I had just returned to chess maybe a year or two prior, uh, my rating was going almost due north. You know, it seemed like every tournament I gained a bunch of points. And then all of a sudden I leveled off for a while. And I was talking to Maurice, asking him, well, how can I break through this? You know, and he, and he looked at it and he goes, you call that a plateau? He's like, try seven years. And I was kind of taken aback. Like I'd never heard a strong player talk about having being plateaued for that long. So Maurice is the only person I can think of who actually fits into that category. So you're right. Like for all of the inspiration that you can get from somebody walking you, how they became strong, you also just kind of hear it in their voice of, ah, it was easy. You know, it was nothing. Yeah. Well, it was often not, it's no like, work at all. They're trying not to say it very often, which, which I totally get, but, but yeah, it's, it, it can make, um, make it challenging to sort of uh, get get the information that, that you're hoping to. For sure. Uh, look, here's a 
a question from Patreon supporter Richard McCormick. Uh, he says, I love your podcast, Ben. I recently came across it and I've been catching up on the many archives during my daily jog. My question to you is after five years of interviews seeking the key to chess improvement, what have you found the most helpful to your own game? Uh, and I will say, Ben, that there were a number of people on Twitter who espoused these same kinds of questions. Like people were very curious to hear which guests have kind of impacted your own outlook or training or whatever else. Yeah. Yeah. I totally get that. But number one, I just have to highlight, you know, I don't, I mean, obviously, you know, part of the reason I'm hoping to someday actually publish a book is I do feel like I've had sort of a, a ringside seat for some, some amazing insights that have been shared. Um, but I, you know, I, I struggle just like everyone else. I don't consider myself an exemplar, but um, to the extent that I've uh, that that I've found success again, um, I do think that playing playing tournaments and reviewing the games is amazing. Um, I finally got a coach during quarantine, Grandmaster Axel Bachman. He's been awesome. Like just uh, helped so much, especially in terms of like understanding opening structures. Obviously, opening courses are great, but in terms of like uh, just sort of. Uh, like uh, cutting through the fog of a position, there's just no substitute for someone uh, significantly stronger than you. Um, and in terms of like guests that have given inspiration, um, uh, shout out to Neil Bruce. I mean, really, I was listening to an interview with uh, with James Clear, uh, the author of Atomic Habits, and obviously Neil has recommended that book and uh, sort of like a um, walking exemplar of it. And it was like listening to Neil. It was uncanny. He was talking about the idea of like identifying as something as a way to get yourself to keep doing it. Like you do chess every day because you identify as a chess player. And I'm not rocking the flashcards like Neil, but definitely um, this idea of daily practice and like a long-term goal. Um, Neil has been uh, every bit as uh, inspirational as any titled player. Um, although if I were to highlight a titled player, it would probably be uh, Jakob Agard. Obviously, I've been privileged to have him on the pod a few times. Um, and But also thinking inside the box, outside the box, inside the box, I always forget, is an amazing book with like great like practical insights. And it's like his only book that if you're rated below 2000, it won't be completely over your head, although parts of it would be over your head. Let's let's be honest. Um, and also, Jakob, when I interviewed him, said something similar to to Neil in that just like a little bit every day, you know, if if you can't do more, at least do a little bit. And, you know, as someone who uh you know, majored in Russian in university and spent a semester in St. Petersburg and used to be okay at Russian, although certainly not nearly as good as all my non-native English speaker guests are at speaking English. Um, but I've let that atrophy and the fact that I didn't do daily practice is, uh, is definitely noticeable. And uh, whenever I sit down to play Blitz, like, uh, you know, because some days of daily practice might be 10, 15 minutes of of tactics. And whenever I sit down to play Blitz, if I haven't played for a few days, it's going to be like three or four games just to like, just to feel like you have the rhythm. And it was the similar thing with, uh, with tournaments. Like 
there was like a distinct moment in like the last round of my second tournament in this latest comeback here in 2021. In the last round, it was like I remembered how to move at a decent clip. And I remembered that like, you know, every move doesn't have to be perfect. And when you're playing frequently, that starts to come naturally to you. But when you're when you're coming in cold seemingly every time, um, it, it can be different. So definitely consistency and daily practice to me are more important than, than what exactly it is that you're doing. Obviously, there's, uh, you know, a zillion amazing tools, many of which... Um, our sponsors or have sponsored the show and uh and chessable is amazing for learning openings i mean total total game changer and in terms of like repeating tactics but to me again and people like jan gustafsson who likes to make fun of the uh adult improver discourse but he is one of the people who said like you know do what's fun for you and mm -hmm. you know worry less about the rest and uh, i think daily practice and doing what isn't torture for you is is a good start yeah, Jan's a great guest. I hope he's on the show again soon. It's been a while. I, I know, right? It's, uh, it's that Jan, if you're listening, come back. It's safe to say he's not listening. It's that delicate balance because I'm actually friends with him. Right. And he's got two young children too. Yeah. And, um, you know, you don't want to jeopardize the friendship. It's like you sometimes you wish like in situations like that, like, I wish there I wish there were something countervailing I could do for him, you know. But like what am I gonna do for Jan <laughs> Gustafsson, you know? Um so anyway, shout out to Jan. <laughs> uh hopefully we can do it again sometime. So what is it that you think brought you back into the mindset of wanting to become an adult improver? What do you hope to get out of? Like, like I know you've stated that you want to get back to 2200 and things like that, but but at a deeper level, what is it that you hope to get out of becoming an adult improver again? Yeah, well, okay. I mean, three things come to mind. Um, number one is just now, again, my kids are finally, you know, it's a magical moment for parents when, you're, when your youngest is, is in is school age. Like it, it tends to free up some time. So number one is it's more feasible. Um, number two is uh, I think it makes me a better podcast host. I mean, obviously you've heard many chess teachers say like, you're a better chess teacher if you're competing regularly. Now, generally, I think that's true. But if you're doing what, what I was doing, if you're like teaching kids how the pawn moves or whatever, you know, for like a, a large percentage of your work, or even if you're teaching like, um, if you're a reasonably strong player and you're teaching kids, say, up to the 11, 1200 level, um, it's, it's not that big a deal, in my opinion, if you're playing actively or not. But for what I'm doing, um, for for the adult improver conversations and, you know, keeping on top of uh, all the uh, chess literature and courses, I, I do think it's important um, to to play. And the other thing is just it's fun. Um, you know, I, I think I've probably mentioned in the past, like I'm a, and anyone who follows me on Twitter probably knows I'm like one of these phone addict people. You know, it's not even... For me, it's not even, I'm not even, I don't even feel guilty about it, which is probably not a great thing. You know, like that's just how I am. I'm, I'm a, I love information, you know, I just always want more. So um, I'm, you know, on my phone a lot. I love, obviously also love to, love to read books, always listening to podcasts whenever I'm driving around or doing chores. So it's like, I'm constantly just flooding my head with information and often it can be like more than one input at the same time. So that feeling of sitting down at a chess tournament and 
knowing if things go okay, you, you might be there for four to five hours and like watching kind of the fog dissipate and then you actually can concentrate. Um, it's, it's a beautiful feeling, you know, Jonathan Rousen, um, another person I freaking can't believe I've had on the show. Um, you know, person like one of my favorite chess writers. I mean, he's written very movingly about sort of that feeling of uh, concentration. And I don't have any other hobbies where that happens, you know. So um, so those are the three the three things about tournament chess that that make me hope to uh, to stick around for a while. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting. You mentioned uh that you can't believe you've interviewed or talked to or interacted with some of these people. And that's one of the nice things about the chess world actually, is that um, the chess world is very small. You know, if you're like, you say you're an NBA fan, but let's be honest, um, Steph Curry's not going to, you know, call you up to see how you're doing anytime soon. He's just got a million other things that are going on. Whereas in the chess world, you know, you do wind up talking to somebody like a Vishyanand, um, or whomever. So I think that's actually one of the things that makes uh, involvement with chess interesting is that you, it's a chance to meet your heroes in various settings, tournaments, in your case, interviewing, in my case, occasionally interviewing. Um, but it does make the chess world a fascinating place. Um, so what is it, what is it that you hope to get out of all of the training in terms of actual chess goals? Um, if you get to 2200, which you've mentioned as a goal, do you have like a stretch goal beyond that? Like, are we going to see Ben Johnson playing in an I am Norm event at the Charlotte Chess Center or, or anything of that nature? It's funny you should mention, I've had conversations with Peter Giannatos. I think, uh, um, you know, he, of course, being the proprietor of uh, Charlotte Chess Club and amazing. I should have mentioned him as a, another great adult improver guest, although I probably don't. Uh, don't need to to mention it because it was actually the second most popular episode this year, only behind uh, Levy Rosman. So, wow. uh, major shout out to Peter, super Im- impressive guy. Um, yeah, I would love to play in those, and I don't mind getting my skull kicked in. I'm, I'm I have no no shame about those things. Um, but but I do actually struggle with that question, Chris, because um, I, again, I've talked about this before, but I mean, I, honestly, you know, my peak rating was twenty two seventy five. At its nadir, it's around 2100 um i finally had a decent tournament last time i played so i think it's about 2125 and this is all uscf honestly for anyone international listing listening the fide ratings in the u.s are just a total cluster f they're just a total mess right now at the club at the like below 2300 level so more than ever you kind of have to ignore them because they were already sort of so many tournaments aren't FIDE rated. And then when you throw the uh, pandemic on top of it, it's like there's so many 2,300 kids rated 1,700 FIDE. And it, so I don't even think about my FIDE rating right now. But anyway, um, if I did get to 2,200, it would be tough because as, I've, as James Altucher and I talked about, um, it's if I get back to 2,200 now, from me, it feels like it would be the same as when I was 2,275 20 years ago. So to, I mean, the next logical thing, I think even FM would be like almost beyond a stretch goal for me, realistically. Um, so for me, it would be like getting a new USCF high of like 2280 or whatever. And even that, that seems hard. So if that happens, I hope I can, you know, if I make it back to 2200, which if I stick with, you know, if, if I take the Neil Bruce plan and take years, 
you know, I'm, I feel reasonably confident I can at least do that. But beyond that, honestly, it, it would be hard to come up with a goal. So I just hope that I can not be so callous as to be like less motivated to play. Like, I hope I can still play for the enjoyment. You know, I dipped way down, came halfway back and uh, just, just take pride in that. But I might, I might need like more process oriented goals at a point like that. Although I'm not like animated by the rating thing now. Anyway, honestly, if I can, you know, any game where I don't, where I manage my time well, um, I, I take pride in right now. Let's talk about that. Uh, you've mentioned time trouble uh, as an issue that you've dealt with over the years. And you've mentioned tools uh, that are uh, sponsors of the show, such as Aim Chess, for example, which serve to try and assist with these things. So Michael Steinkogler actually submits a Patreon question touching on these points where he says, Hi, Ben, I noticed you were using or have access to quite a wide range of chess tools and subscription services like Aim Chess, Chess Mood, Chessify, and so on. If you had to choose a small selection of those, uh, for example, because of budget or time constraints, which ones would it be and why? For context, I'm rated around 2,000 feet A and currently using Chessable, Chess Tempo, and Lead Chess, uh, but also wondering if I should try something else. Now, Ben, I'm not expecting you to start comparing sponsor A against sponsor B and to leave one of them, one of them on the cutting room floor, but why don't you talk a little bit about what all those services bring to the table and how somebody like Michael could benefit from them or other listeners, of course. All right. An infomercial. Let's do it. <laughs> um, <laughs> In a former life, I did voiceovers for it. All right. Um, no, I mean, they, they actually, I mean, obviously, whatever, it's impossible to say this without sounding like a show, but uh, there's, there's just so many great products in the chess world. So yeah, I totally understand that it, it can be difficult to choose. One thing I should say, uh, shout out to Chessify, but they, they are not and they've never been a sponsor. I'm just a fan of uh, the, the ability they give you to scan positions. And obviously, like in recent interviews, you heard uh, Erwin Lemie talk about their cloud software, which um, I would love to try someday, even though I don't really need it. Um, but yeah, Chessify, not a sponsor, but aim chess to me. I mean, I do find it helpful. Um, and like, I get, as I've said in the, in the ads, like I was a sub before they reached out to me and I would remain a sub, but I look at it as like a fun way to work on my blitz game primarily. Um, and you know, I, as you know, blitz being a microcosm of chess, I do need to work. It does help highlight a few points, but, um, more, I feel like it's like, you know, for a lot of people, it's like an affordable price point and it's fun. And obviously I do some coaching and it's helpful for coaching. Um, certainly seeing like which openings you perform well in is, is helpful. But um, to me, its biggest value is like using its algorithm to identify things that you can work on uh, in, in your, your more general training. Um, obviously Chessable, as I've mentioned before, like uh, to me, it's it shines brightest when it comes to openings and tactics. Um, and I know, like Erwin Lemie recently mentioned, uh, obviously he's the author of, or he contributed to the new uh, Dvoretsky Endgame Manual project. So he um, he's a fan of what it can do for Endgames too. I'm uh, I have to confess, I uh, I haven't been working on my Endgames that much, so I just can't can't speak to that as well. But certainly uh, for for tactics and uh, chess mood is good for like. Um, you know, developing a repertoire, you know, um, in terms of um, really getting a more holistic understanding in terms of watching videos. But but I mean, they're they're all great products. Um, you know, it really it gets back to what I said before. I, um, I think you really whatever what we all need to try to do is 
resist the temptation to just hop around endlessly. Just kind of pick a couple of things, put your head down, commit to doing them for a long time and see where that takes you. Yeah, I agree. Um, I, I also use a few of those services myself and I, I agree. We're, there's an embarrassment of riches in the chess world right now. So let's take uh, one last Twitter question and then a couple more quick questions and we'll get it wrapped up. So Jim Sadler on Twitter asks, how has life changed since the lockdown, Queen's Gambit, and the chess boom? Yeah. So um, obviously the podcast has grown. I mean, it's, uh, it's you know, I, again, I, I may have mentioned, mentioned this in an interview somewhere, but um, it certainly wasn't, it didn't like double or triple the way you read about like chess.com or elite chess uh, growing. But, but I mean, I think it had like 40% more listeners last year or something like that. And now it's probably down a bit on the year. I mean, obviously not everyone from Queens Gambit is going to stick around, but I mean, I, I'm sure, I think you got a couple questions about like, is this my, my full-time job? I mean, it's really, it's, I mean, first of all, I should say I'm, I'm like every, every family has like a lead parent. And I'm the lead parent in in my house and have been for for years. My wife has a very demanding job, often works like at least 45 hours a week. So for me, even a full week is usually not 40 hours because you're like chauffeuring the kids and all that stuff. And again, that has that has died down a little. But uh, nonetheless, um, so the podcast is uh, it's not it's not completely a full-time job, but it's, it's, I can pick what I want to do aside from that. So I don't, I don't do much, but aside from that anymore and, and I can be a bit choosy and obviously I consider myself um, very lucky and mainly it's just great to have so many new chess fans. I mean, uh, for, for any faults that Queens Gambit has, it's just awesome to see all these people either reappreciate or suddenly appreciate the game. So shout out to anyone who's listening, um, especially if you made it this far in the podcast. Um, you know, it's, um, it's, it's, it's really cool to see. I know it can be kind of overwhelming at first to, to sort of wrap one's head around the, uh, the, the chess ecosystem and kind of know what to study and all that stuff. So um, I, I definitely commend anyone who's, um, who's found it enticing enough to, uh, to stick around. Yeah. And, you know, I've noticed that uh, that's a theme that kind of runs through a lot of your adult improver episodes, which is that you're not necessarily going for the adult improvers who have had the most rating gains or, uh, you know, who've made the most progress or whatever. You know, your last guest, and I'm sorry, his name escapes me. Alex Crompton. Alex, yes. Alex was a great example of somebody who is really just a a post beginner in a lot of ways, but the fact that those kind of guests are also making it on perpetual chess, I really think it gives a wide range of appreciation to players across the entire spectrum. You know, somebody who's in Alex's shoes can sit there and say, Oh, okay. Well, you know, if I, if I do choose to invest my time in improving at chess, it's not impossible. It's not too late. I'm not too old. Yeah. And in terms of uh, regrets, that that actually may be one is that I may have been in terms of the adult improver interviews, um, may have been a little too focused on on rating gain because, you know, like, who am I? You know, like I I struggle to gain rating points just like everyone else. 
Um, and, you know, your rating doesn't define you. You know, uh, an ability to improve or not improve is, is really not, not important in the grand scheme of life. Um, so that is something I'm more conscious of. And uh, um, as I alluded to in the sort of series, I'll be maybe doing more often in terms of like people trying to achieve the next level. But but I mean, if they don't achieve the next level, it's like you were asking me, like I have a goal because it's helpful to have a goal. But really, like playing in tournaments is an escape for me. Um, and that's kind of the uh, the more important thing. Um, just embrace the process and and not worry about it as much. So yeah, that's definitely something I'm I'm grappling with. But one one challenge I have to say, like Alex wrote just like an amazing blog post, and obviously had done done a lot of research. So I had a pretty strong feeling he was going to be a compelling guest. But without any sort of like rating parameters, it's it would for me be somewhat overwhelming trying to figure out who to interview. So that's sort of the uh, in terms of adult improvers. So that's sort of the the one uh, um, counterbalance to to the fact that I I really I hope to not only emphasize like gaining rating. Okay. So Ben, I'll leave you with this final question. And we're going to go back to Perpetual Chess, the podcast here for a second, and we'll step away from adult improving. You've mentioned before that Spassky would be kind of your white whale guest. But I want to know, well, A, I guess I, I would like to know, have you tried to reach out to Spassky and get him on the show? But secondly, who else is on that list? Who would you really like to say, you know, please come on Perpetual Chess? Yeah, that's another question that I I'm not as good at as I should be. Um, Spassky, I've I've heard his health isn't amazing, so I've never reached out. And honestly, I don't think it's I don't think it's in in the cards. I mean, you know, if I were to hear like if I were to see him make a public appearance or something like that, you know, I I would uh, shoot my shot. But but uh, but from what I've heard, I um I think we'll we'll ha- we we can treasure the interviews and the contributions to chess. He's already made. Um, one person I'm definitely interested in interviews that came up when I, in my most recent interview with, uh, James Altucher is, um, is Laszlo Polgar. Um, I just think, I mean, obviously the Polgars themselves have this amazing legacy in chess, but his story is so fascinating. And obviously there've been books written about their family, but I mean, he's had some years to reflect on it. Um, and it would just be, it would, it would be really fun, I think, to sort of, um, hear, hear his, his look back on the whole air quotes experiment of intentionally raising these chess prodigies and, you know, um, see, see how, how he reflects on the whole things. And I'm sure he has some, obviously he's written, you know, his, he's written some amazing chess books, chess workbooks as well. So I'm sure he'd have some, uh, some good tips on knowledge acquisition, um, you know, in a similar vein, someone like Henrik Carlsen would be interesting. But then there's always the old school chess legends. I mean, that's uh, that's really where I gravitate. Again, obviously, legends like Magnus, you know, contemporary, amazing players. Like, uh, it would be a nice feather in my cap. But anyone listening who didn't see the two-hour stream of, like, Magnus chugging beers and playing one-minute chess, like, be sure to watch that. I mean, that's, that's better than any interview um, I could give. Although Magnus... Holler at your boy. I'll I'll drink I'll drink beer and get crushed get crushed by you in one minute if that if that's what it takes. But anyway, I mean the top players that would be nice, but like 
you know, Ben Feingold highlighted Luboyevich. So that sent me down a rabbit hole of looking at old interviews of his. There's actually only a couple online. So someone like that, where there's only a couple online, even Ulf Anderson, um, you know, absolute legend of the game, uh, end game wizard. Um, I did check his English is good. Um, you know, and some of these people, it's not like I've been trying and trying. It's just like, uh, you know, doing this show is a constant juggling of like, um, you know, people I'm interested in interviewing, but also like people with books and courses coming out. And then you have to have a certain number of adult improver guests. And then you have the the, the book recaps coming along uh, in the background. So again, I'm very, feel very fortunate and uh, happy to do it. But uh, often like there's there's people I know I want to interview, but I just can't find a week where I don't feel like I have someone I should circle back to or someone I've been excited that's finally coming up. Like uh, speaking of which, I'm hoping to interview Michael Adams when when his book comes out. That would be amazing. Um, so yeah, people like that. I love what I've noticed. Like someone like Jan Tim, and I think part of the reason he's one of my favorites is I think often the people who have the best perspective are the ones who are not quite the strongest. I mean, obviously, all due respect to, to Jan Timmen, total legend, played for the world championship, but he was not world champion. And, you know, he's got this, this ability to be like the participant and the observer at the same time. And I think often when you can interview the people who were not number one in the world, but Luboyevich, I think, peaked at number three, you know, like those people just have amazing stories to tell and they appreciate it. Agree. And I, I was a big Lubo fan back in the day. Yeah, I remember pouring through whatever the latest issue of uh, Inside Chess was to get a peek at whatever games he had just played in the uh, the old uh, GMA tournaments. So, Ben, I, I guess on behalf of the listeners and yourself, I suppose, I'd like to thank you for taking this time to go through this process and let us get a little bit of an insight into you and the show and where it all sprang from. And with that, I'll throw it to you to take us out. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks again. Anyone who, who made it this far, let us, I mean, obviously don't let us know if you hate it. We'll just, if no one listens, I'll, I'll, I'll infer as much, but, uh, but if, it, if it's something you'd like to hear more of, maybe I'd do it every three years instead of every five, but certainly I'm excited to, uh, to get back to, uh, to regular interviews. Um, no, no, uh, huge guests on the horizon, but looking forward to, to sharing some good adult improver content and, um, and uh, catching up with some old friends of the pod and the like. And of course, you never know who will, uh, you never know when Magnus will page me. So I'm sure, I'm sure it'll happen it's one coming. of these days. But Chris also just wanted to say thanks to you. You did an awesome job uh, as I knew you would this. So thanks so much. Really appreciate it. I know you, I know you put some prep time in and thanks to you and to everyone who, who supported the podcast over the years. Um, obviously, we're, as you said, um, uh, not, hoping to do this for well more than five years. I heard Levy Rosman at some point say like, he doesn't think he'll be making YouTube videos uh, in, in five years. And um, yeah, I definitely, obviously Levy's like, again, different stratosphere, totally crushing. It might be destined for bigger things, but for me, I, I want to do this as long as like, uh, you know, as long as people will listen and uh, as long as uh, it's, you know, a medium. So uh, hopefully those things uh, stay aligned. And I also wanted to mention before we go, um, this will be the last time we're going to do the epic list of names on the closing credits. It was with a heavy heart that I finally decided like uh, seven minutes worth of names uh, just isn't um, 
you know, you don't hear that on a lot of other podcasts. And uh, it was, you know, when I started doing this back in the day, uh, the people supporting the podcast were like the lifeblood. I mean, they still they still are, but it's just not feasible to do that for for seven minutes every week, or at least it's not um, not the best programming. Um, so shout out to all the the Patreon subs. Um, I appreciate you all as much as ever, but this will be the last time the, uh, the, uh, closing credits roll, uh, going forward, new subs, anyone, any new Patreon subs, uh, you'll get a shout out by name at the end of each adult improver interview, just as a way that I can sort of keep track, um, so that I have it measured. Um, so you'll, you'll get a shout out by name one time at the end of the show, but not every time for any, uh, rook level supporters and beyond. But anyway, uh, sorry for the rambling, but Chris, uh, thanks again. You, you did great, man. I really, really appreciate your, your help, uh, now and, uh, all the years preceding it. Yeah. It was a thrill to be here and I, I look forward to maybe doing this again someday. Excellent. See you in five years. <laughs> That's great. All right. Perpetual Chess is proud to be a member of the Blue Wire Podcast Network. Be sure to check out their sports and pop culture related podcasts as well. I also, as always, would like to thank Matthew Passy for producing the show. Without Matthew, Perpetual Chess would not exist. And I want to thank everyone who listens to the show, whether it be on your own without telling anyone about it, keeping it secret, or if you're helping to spread the word all the better, whether it be telling a friend about a particularly impactful interview or whether it be writing a positive review online, all of that stuff helps get the word out and helps Perpetual Chess continue to grow. But most of all, of course, I want to thank those that provide financial support to Perpetual Chess. Without you all, Perpetual Chess would not be possible in its current form. And I would like to give uh, special thanks to the following people and entities. Here comes the list. Uh, Chessable.com. David Lazarus of Lasman Chess, coach of Dave's Young Tigers on Lee Chess, Quality Chess Books, The Capital City Chess Club, The Abysmal Depths of Chess Blog, Adaptive Interactive Web Designs and Services, The Apprentice Twitch Channel, Anidi Deer, Austin Clough, Benjamin Porteau, Bill Sigler, Kathy Carr, Chad Oliver, The Charlotte Chess Center, The Chess Central's Chess Blog, ChessMood.com, Chris Flanagan, Chris Lott, Dan O'Hanlon, Daniel He, Danny Davidson, David Mitchell. I am Dimitri Schneider, Douglas Wilson. I am Eric Rosen, Farhan Tharwar, Faraz Sawaf, Gary Foreman, Glenn Downing, Greg Harfst, Greg Shahadi, Gregory Gullick, Hampus Axelson, James Kennedy, Jay Garrison, Jeff Martinson, Jeff Schaefer, Jeremy Nielsen, John Jernigan, John MacArthur, Kevin Forsyth, Kevin Gilmore, Kevin O'Callaghan, Kevin Pryor, King Cell, the King's Crusher YouTube channel, the Law Offices of Stuart Katz, Matthew Feeney, Michael Can, FM Michael Oplin, Mr. Mike Shahadi, Michael Sullivan, the famous Mr. Dodgy, the Nerd Nace Twitch channel, Perry McManus, GM Peter Prohaska, Peter Sodi, Philip Flummins, the Playmore Chess Academy of the Hamden Chess Club, Ray Lillywhite, Reuven Fisher, Rick Rivas, Robert Hansen, Ross Crossland, the Seattle Chess Club, Shane Unger, Stephen Kelty, Stephen Martinez, 
Sven Gearson, Thomas Tachenko, Todd Bryant of StrongChess.com, Todd Kennedy, The Vintage Patsers, which is a chess.com improver group, Wayne Beam. And I also would like to thank the following. Hashtag ChessPunks, who are the adult improvers on chess Twitter. Ace Vallega, Adam Fowler, Adam Johansson, Adam Ralph of ChessEngland.com, Adrian Gutierrez, Al Hastings, Alan and Maggie Sue, Alex Pejas, Alexander Markovitz, Antonio Cancino, Antonio Leonfort, FM Andre Tarakov, Dr. Andrew Perry, Angus McLeod, Barry Hessian, Bill Gruber, Bill Juniper, Bill Moran, Bill Trammell, Brad and Andy Rosen, Brandon Halseed, Brian Chase, Brian Mullis, Bruce Scott, Bruno Johnson, Brian Tillis of Palm Beach Chess, Cameron Davis, Ken Kabadi, Chad Hilton, Chad Likens, of Rose City Chess in Portland, the Chess Dojo, Chess for Charity, Jacksonville, Chess Patser, Spain, Dr. Charles Snodgrass, Chris Kiefer, Chris Wainscott, Christopher Baumgartner, Christopher Shabri, Christopher Wood, I am Christoph Zalecki, a.k.a. Chess Explained, Coach Jay's Chess Academy, Costa Carras, Courtney Fry, Craig Mallon, Daniel Ginsberg, Daniel Naylor, Dave Best, Dave Saylor, David Blaskacek, David Brown, David Gores, David Hamblin, David Cramley, David Peterson, Dennis Parrish, FM Donnie Ariel, Dwayne Edmonds, Ed Daly, Ed Mead, Edwin Rodriguez, Eric Baldwin, Ethan Smith, Evan Rosenberg, Ewan Richardson, Ian Mason, Felipe Mayo Perea, Fox Valley Chess Club, Francis Letard Lavoie, Frank Tortoris, MD, Frank Zananis, Gary Andrews, Gary Lewis, Gautam Narula, Gene Stewart, George Foote, George Harris, Giovanni Russo, Gregory Higgins, Han Shu, Harish Srinivasan, Howard Vihan, Jacob Kovach, Jason Apollo, Jason Murray, Jacques Pari, James Aspinwall, James Benastia, James Muir, Jason Woolham, Jay Tuttle, J. Deep Chakrabarty, Jeff Anderson, Jeff Davis, Jeffrey Martello, Yep Portland, Jerry Wells, Jesse DeCumos, Jesse McNulty, Jim Jones, Jim Ratliff, Jim Sadler, Joe DeSano, Joe Valdez, Joel Thomas Ramos, John McAdams, John Tully, Juan Almaguar, Dr. John Fallon, John Fernandez, John Fontaine, John Hartman, John Jeffrey, John McMurtry, Jonathan Bannister, Jonathan Slater, John Quist, John Tully, Jose Rodriguez, Justin Gardner, Justin Goodfellow, Jen Shahadi, Joel Rocky, John Thompson, Grandmaster Josh Fridell, I am Kari Christensen, WGM Katarina Nemsova, Kelly Palmer, Krishna Gopala Krishnan, Kyle McAvoy, Larry Cook, Larry Reiferth, Lars Wiesen, Macaulay Peterson, Maria Emelyanova, aka Photo Chess, Mark Chaves, Mark Fitzpatrick, Mark Miller, Mark Wilkins, Marco Butolovich, Martin Knudsen, Martin Krug, Matt Ferrari, Matthew Coughlin, Matthew Tedesco of SeattleChessMeetup.org, Matthias Plock, Mechanics Institute Chess Club of San Francisco, Michael Allard, Michael Hudson, Mike Clem, Mitchell Fabian, Nate Gobel, Nate Solon, Neil Bruce, Nigma Malajanov, Nicholas Isabel, Olaf Mueller-Michaels, Pablo Davila, GM Pascal Charbonneau, Passy Passanen, Paul Bain, Paul Clarkson, Paul Eckert, Paul Sweeney, Paulo Santana, Peter Lux, Queenside Management Limited in Switzerland, um, Randall Montgomery, Randy Temple, Ricky Grijalva, Richard Hallenbach, Richard McCormick, Richard Tucker, Robert Callahan, Robert Turner, Robert Wall, Robert Wilson, Rory Coleman, Ryan Berg, Samson Teaches Chess, Satyajit Malagu, The Say Chess YouTube Channel and Publishing Empire, Scott McKinnon, Scott Rose, Sean Krauss, Sebastian Finsterwater, Sergey Makagon, Seth Ruzica, Seth Will, Sean Tracy, Silver Knights in Richmond, Simon Schmidt, Stefan Roller, 
Stephen Miller and Tom George, WGM Tati of Abrahamian, Terry King, Thomas Brown, Tim Brennan of TacticsTime.com, Tim Seymour, Timothy Ha, FM Timothy Wall, Tobiah Rex, Tom Edsel, Tommy Farron, Tony Rotella, Tyron Price, Victor Beauchamp, William Brock, William Peterson, FM Zhao Cheng of Chess1000.com, Zachary Hoskin, and Zhivkor Stoyanov. Thanks for listening, everyone. Podcast Network. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.